What if there was advice that anyone could activate and it could actually trigger a religious experience? Not just a profound one, not an unexplainable one, and not just a strange one, but one that was seemingly supernatural. That was the vision of a psychology professor named Michael Persinger, who dedicated much of his life to perfecting a technology that he believed could revolutionize our ideas about God himself. In fact, he was so confident in the machine's ability that he called it the God Helmet. I'm Jesse Carey. I'm a writer, a journalist, and a podcaster. And this is Hiding Something, Season 2, Ultra. Chapter 8, Finale. Before we get into Michael Persinger's mysterious God Helmet, I want to first tell you about another researcher whose curiosity led to his own experiments to unlock the power of the mind. His name was Dr. Albert Mason, and in the early 1950s, he briefly became a media sensation after an odd encounter with a young boy who came to his doctor's office seeking treatment for a severe skin condition. Much of the boy's body was covered in what appeared to be black warts that were so hard, they were the same consistency as fingernails. The boy's family had sought numerous treatments, including skin grafts and surgeries, all to no avail. In fact, some of the treatments even seemed to have made the condition worsen. On somewhat of a whim, Dr. Mason decided to try something. He had heard of cases of warts seemingly being cured by hypnosis and thought it could be worth a try. In a mix of theatrics and impromptu hypnosis, Dr. Mason told the boy that his warts would clear up within a week and asked him to follow up after several days. A week later, the boy returned to Dr. Mason's office, and something astonishing had happened. The black warts that had once covered his arms were gone. Within a month, the warts that covered his legs began disappearing as well. Dr. Mason and his colleagues were impressed, but not long after, Dr. Mason was told something that would dramatically alter his own thoughts on the events. It turned out, the boy wasn't suffering from warts at all. He was suffering from a rare skin condition that was, by all accounts, incurable. Using only the power of the mind, Dr. Mason had somehow cured a disease that there was no known cure for. The results of the events would later be published in the British Medical Journal, and before and after images from the journal article are still available online today if you want to see them for yourself. They're crazy images. That paper in the British Medical Journal would soon become a sensation, and soon Dr. Mason himself would gain a reputation as sort of a hypnosis miracle worker, and patients with their own disorders would seek him out for his strange treatments. But after Dr. Mason was told that the condition that he had seemingly healed in the boy wasn't warts, but was in fact a disease that had never been cured, something odd happened. Dr. Mason lost his ability to hypnotize people into getting better. The simple knowledge that he was doing the impossible made it impossible for him to do it again. Even though he would go on to write extensively about hypnosis, he would later concede that the knowledge of the impossibility shook his confidence so much that he doubted that he would ever be able to replicate it again. He would later write this, I now knew it was incurable. Beforehand, I thought it was warts. I had a conviction that I can cure warts. After that first case, I was acting. I knew it had no right to get well. End quote. When Dr. Mason was convinced that he could heal through hypnosis, his patients were too. But when he lost that confidence, despite his best quote-unquote acting, his patients, despite their own belief, could no longer be healed. 
There's a French term that Dr. Mason would later use to describe the case called folie adieu, which literally translates to, quote, madness shared by two. In other words, it appeared that the belief that the superpowers of the mind only work if both the sender of the message and the receiver of it actually believe it. Okay, with that story in mind, I want to talk to you about the God Helmet. Like many of the individuals we've discussed this season, Canadian neuropsychologist Michael Persinger was an interesting but very controversial figure. He developed a theory that essentially attempted to explain intense spiritual experiences and seemingly paranormal sensations. Because the brain operates by sending a series of complex electric signals, Persinger suggested that it could be manipulated by a field of specifically tuned electromagnetic waves. In fact, he also believed that all the brains on Earth were somehow linked through geomagneticism. Are we all connected? The answer is yes. That's Persinger delivering a lecture in 2011, which you can watch on TVO's YouTube channel. It was a talk he had delivered many times before, called Just Suppose You Can Know What Others Are Thinking, colon, No More Secrets. It actually won a lecture competition a few years before. We are all immersed in the Earth's magnetic field. The human species is about 7 billion conductive brains all sharing this field. Think of 7 billion wires all immersed in the Earth's magnetic field. This field contains enough energy to store the experience of every human being who has ever lived. According to Persinger, this electronic connection could offer an explanation for seemingly paranormal activities like mind reading and remote viewing. It could also, theoretically, allow all human brains to experience the same supernatural experience all at once. It means simply this. Such convergence produces the conditions that allow global resonance and the possibility of a human hologram. That is, 7 billion brains basically immersed in the Earth's magnetic field all with similar intensities, the whole equal the sum, and the sum equal the individual, individual equal the sum, that sets up the conditions for a hologram. Persinger believed that the left and right hemispheres of the brain could be synced in a very specific way that would simulate a supernatural experience. Because in his belief, supernatural experiences were essentially just the rational left side of the brain trying to make sense of the right hemisphere's complex emotions and sense of self. If he could manipulate signals between those two sides, he believed that he could essentially manufacture an experience with quote-unquote God inside a person's head. To test this theory, Persinger and a colleague named Stanley Corinne outfitted a snowmobile helmet with a series of electromagnets to create a complex, highly tuned field of electromagnetic waves capable of stimulating specific spots in the brain. Over the course of decades, hundreds of volunteers would travel to Persinger's remote lab. Once there, they would enter a custom-designed Faraday cage meant to limit electronic interference, and then they would strap on Persinger's so-called quote-unquote God helmet. Once the conditions were set, the subject's brains would be washed in an electronic field, with Persinger giving them instructions from an adjoining room. Individuals would often report feeling a mystical presence in the room. Many would attribute it to the presence of God or a biblical figure. Others, they would have seemingly intense religious experiences. Even skeptics, who dismissed Persinger's wider theories about the Earth's geomagnetic fields linking human consciousness, would concede that, well, something would happen when God's helmet is activated. In 1999, Wired Magazine sent a reporter named Jack Hitt to try God's Helmet in a feature called This Is Your Brain on God. In the piece, Hitt describes himself as a, quote, lapse Episcopalian, clinging to only a hazy sense of the divine, end quote. 
Though the tone of that magazine piece is somewhat skeptical, Hitt does lay out his hopes for the experiment, and he seems pretty open-minded, writing, quote, I see myself having a powerful vision of Jesus, coming out of the booth wet with tears of humility, wailing for mercy from my personal Savior, end quote. However, in reality, the experience was somewhat disappointing, but it was also somewhat strange. I'll have an actor read from the piece. After I adjust to the darkness and the cosmic susurrus of absolute silence, I drift almost at once into a warm bath of oblivion. Something is definitely happening. During the 35-minute experiment, I feel a distinct sense of being withdrawn from the envelope of my body and set adrift in an infinite existential emptiness, a deep sensation of waking slumber. The machines outside the chamber report an uninterrupted alertness on my part. If the researchers see the easily recognized EEG pattern of sleep, they wake you over the speakers. Occasionally, I surface to an alpha state where I sort of know where I am, but not quite. This feeling is cool, like being reinserted into my body. Then there's a separation again of body and soul, and almost by my will, I happily allow myself to drift back to the surprisingly bearable lightness of oblivion. Hit says that during the experiment, instead of experiencing something divine, he began to remember the feelings of teenage love, writing this. If I had to pin down when I felt this dreamy state before, of being in the presence of something divine, it would be back then in the euphoric, romantic hope that animated my adolescent efforts at meditation. Richard Dawkins, the famed atheist and supernatural skeptic behind the book The God Delusion, he also once tried the God Helmet and had a similar experience to hit. Though he didn't experience a supernatural presence, something definitely happened when his brain was blasted with electromagnetic waves. He said that his breathing started to change, and he began to feel odd sensations in his limbs. He called the experience, quote, quite strange. Even Dawkins, who has made a career out of attempting to debunk the supernatural in religion, seemed to concede that the effects of the technology being used by the gods' helmets were, at the very least, incredibly odd and absolutely noticeable. Okay, so where is this all going? We open this season with the story of a journalist and conspiracy theorist named Serge Manasque. For a quick reminder, Manasse is most famous for a theory he called Project Bluebeam. It suggested that NASA was conspiring with the UN to execute the greatest deception in history that would lead to the enslavement of humanity. If you want a more detailed explanation of the theory, you can dive back in in episode one. But essentially, it would involve using satellites to create hyper-realistic holograms that would trick people into thinking they were seeing a vision of God himself. Electromagnetic waves would then be employed to speak directly into people's minds, manipulating them into thinking they were actually hearing from God. A series of staged earthquakes would then reveal ancient artifacts that would discredit previous understandings about religion, uniting humanity behind a single divine being, which was actually, according to Manast, being controlled by mind-controlled technology. There's more to it, including a fake alien invasion, but Look, at its core, Bluebeam would use electromagnetic waves and existing technology to control people's minds and create a new religion controlled by powerful government forces. Not long after becoming a proponent of the theory, Manasse died under odd circumstances, leading some to believe he might have actually been onto something. This season has been an exploration of two things. One, is what Manasse proposed even possible? And two, what are the limits of the human mind? And what are the implications of those limits? Well, the answer to the first question, it's pretty nuanced. The days before this episode released, Elon Musk's brain technology interface company Neuralink released a new video. 
This is Pager. He's a nine-year-old macaque who had a Neuralink placed in each side of his brain about six weeks ago. If you look carefully, you can see that the fur on his head hasn't quite fully grown back yet. He's learned to interact with a computer for a tasty banana smoothie delivered through a straw. The video shows a monkey approach a monitor that displays a stripped-down version of the classic video game Pong. The monkey is rewarded for his game performance with sips of a smoothie delivered through a straw that's connected to the monitor. In the video, he approaches the machine, puts his mouth on the straw, and grabs a joystick. Meanwhile, researchers monitor the monkey's brain activity through an iPhone app. We can interact with the Neuralinks simply by pairing them to an iPhone, just as you might pair your phone to a Bluetooth speaker. The monkey plays the game well, moving a small virtual ball across a grid chasing an orange square. He's clearly pretty good at it. But there's something you should know about the video game. The joystick that the monkey thinks he's using to control the ball on the screen, it isn't actually even plugged in. The monkey, he's controlling the game with his mind. For decades, people like Elon Musk, Michael Persinger, and Jose Delgado, remember, he's the researcher who would stop a raging bull with an implantable brain chip. They've all demonstrably shown that electronics and electromagnetism can interact with the brain in some incredible ways. Look, conceivably, it would be at least theoretically possible to refine this manipulation and use it on a massive scale to manipulate brain activity. However, there's still no evidence that anything on that scale has even been remotely close to being fully realized. But fears about such an ability have led to people doing some extremely dangerous things. As countries, including the US, experiment with the ionosphere and controversial weather control technology, it's not unreasonable to assume that people would project their own fears onto technologies that are honestly pretty difficult to understand even if those fears lead to some very irrational behavior and attitudes about those innovations. Clearly, neurological innovations are evolving rapidly and hold immense potential to help humanity in some profound ways. But that technology, like all technology, can be misused. The U.S. government and other governments long ago realized this. That understanding has led to the decades-long arms race to weaponize mind control technology and defend against its use. It's those efforts that have led to the answers to question number two. What are the limits of the human mind, and what are the implications of truly understanding those limits? According to declassified documents, for decades, the U.S. government has dumped millions of dollars into research into psychokinesis, psychedelic drugs, ESP, remote viewing, and more seemingly paranormal experiments to weaponize human consciousness. But the results, while sometimes pretty astonishing, were often unreliable. However, there were times when certain individuals like Uri Geller demonstrated the ability to do incredible things. But here's the thing. There are two things that a lot of people seem to assume about Uri Geller and people like him. But only one of those two things is the subject for serious debate. And that is the assumption that people like Uri Geller possess incredible mental powers. The other thing that people assume that isn't up for a debate is that Uri Geller is a showman. And look, even he would concede this. Uri Geller's hosted TV shows and performed for countless people over the years, along with his work in the intelligence community. His abilities do seem baffling, but even though I can't explain all of them, I personally think they might be explainable. I was once at a restaurant where a mentalist was going table to table doing short performances for all the guests there that evening. He would do things like picking up spoons off of random tables, and he would bend them by barely touching them. The spoon bending was cool, but at one point, he told my friend across the table to close his eyes, and when he felt any sensation, describe out loud to the table what he felt. 
The mentalist then asked me to think about that friend as he proceeded to wipe the end of his silk necktie across my face. At that very instance, my friend said this, I feel you wiping a necktie across my face, even though he sat alone across the table with nothing even close to his head or face. It was an incredible trick. I was at another event one time where the magician David Blaine was performing up-close magic. I saw him move cards that were sitting on the floor without even touching them, and he would perform a variety of seemingly impossible tricks. Look, I don't know how either of those performers pulled off those stunts, but I don't think they were using actual magic. I think they, too, were showmen, creating two kinds of illusions. One, that we could see and feel. The other, that we believe. They were able to make us briefly question our own perception of reality itself. And here's the thing. The CIA, they've long employed magicians. And as David Copperfield explained in a clip from earlier this season, they both use similar techniques in their deception. Look, I'm not saying that Project Stargate, the experiments at the Stanford Research Institute, and all of those strange happenings at the Roundtable Foundation were disinformation campaigns, but I do think we need to be seriously open to that possibility. Because one thing we also learned this season, it's that mind control isn't just something theoretically possible through things like ESB and ELF waves. It's something that's actually possible through the consumption of information and disinformation. Remember the idea of, quote, madness shared by two? In order for that to work, both the sender and receiver of the message have to actually believe it. It's a principle that not only applies to the placebo effect, but also to disinformation. If powerful forces can convince people that conspiracy theories are real, then to those people, they're no longer theories. They become those people's realities. And in turn, those people begin disseminating the information that informs their own realities, causing others to believe them too. The powerful forces employing those types of techniques might be institutions like the CIA, NASA, and the UN, but they also might be less sinister ones, like the algorithms that dictate what you read and hear on social media sites. Before we sign off for this season, there's something else you need to know about Serge Manast and Project Bluebeam. Bluebeam was really just the tip of the iceberg when it came to his theories. If you dig deeper into his belief, he suggested that a monastic order and secret societies were actually in control of humanity. In fact, he once wrote a book framed after an infamous booklet called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Written in the early 1900s, it purported to lay out a plan by Jewish leaders to take over the world. A later version of that book was given to German schoolchildren when Nazis rose to power. The book is wildly anti-Semitic. I mean, it is terrible. But it was later revealed to be a hoax fabricated and reappropriated throughout history by powerful institutions who wanted to harm Jewish people. The book itself was a form of mind control. If you can get people to believe the lie and share it with others, you now have the madness shared by two. In reality, mind control technology is fascinating. And... The more we begin to understand the nature of consciousness and the science of neurology, the more we realize that we are now beginning to fully realize the capabilities of the mind. Seriously, we're living in really exciting times. But after months of research into this topic, I'm convinced that those innovations, they aren't the ones that should scare us. The kind of mind control we should be afraid of is the kind we encounter every single day. It's the kind that makes rational people believe irrational things, and worse, act on those irrational beliefs in irrational and dangerous ways. 
If we allow ourselves to be manipulated and don't truly investigate what we encounter online and in the media, we lose our ability to discern who's telling the truth, who's actually controlling what we think, and who might be hiding something. Hiding Something is an ironclad original. All episodes this season were written by me, Jesse Carey. And big time shout out to my post-production producer and editor, Chandler Schrank. Seriously, if you guys could hear <laughs> how many takes it takes me to get through a single episode, uh, you would be very, very impressed by Chandler's skill. Chandler, thanks, man. I couldn't make this show without you. It's been a blast this season. And hey, listen, Chandler's actually going to join me for a postseason recap in a couple of days, so be sure to tune in for that. We're also going to kind of hint at what is coming next season on hiding something also big shout out and thanks to my voiceover actor brian crouch you heard him in this episode and various episodes throughout the season brian thanks for all you do man also most of all thank you to all of you who are listening man it's so cool to to see how many people are listening to each episode uh to read the reviews that you guys leave in apple podcasts and in all the different podcast outlets to interact with you guys on reddit to get dms on twitter i seriously can't thank you enough for listening It really means the world. A lot goes into producing this show, and it's kind of a weird podcast. I will concede that. We go in a lot of different directions, a lot of different rabbit trails, and explore a lot of different themes. And it really means the world to me that so many people are willing to tune in, check it out, and and hopefully you guys enjoyed it as well. All right, everyone. I'll see you in a couple days during the postseason recap, and then season three of Hiding Something coming kind of soon. I need a little bit of time uh, to get it ready, but uh, we're excited about what's in store. All right, everyone. Thanks. We'll see you next time. 